Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Out with the old. Margaret Wente's column was well past its best before date. And the value of whatever clicks Wente drove to the Globe and Mail were finally outweighed by all of the liabilities that she'd accumulated over the years. The plagiarism scandals, the reductive anecdotal arguments, the cheap provocations, the refusal to be curious. Wente still resonated with lots of readers but they were exactly the kind of aging readers the Globe needs to replace with new blood. She was bad for the brand. And so with little fanfare or tribute, she took a buyout and penned one last feeble shot at the Me Too panic on her way out the door. It's a figurative door, of course, because Margaret Wente rarely left her Beaches neighborhood to actually work out of the Globe's office. Okay, Boomer. Goodbye. And hello to... Andrew Coyne? At the Globe, again. And Robin Urbach. Two clever and capable columnists, to be sure. But if this is the new Globe, sure reads a lot like the old Globe. 
central right, eyebrows perpetually arched, singing to the choir. And it sure looks like the old globe. So white. As Canada has become increasingly diverse, Canada's media has gone the other way. Our newsrooms are whiter than ever, less representative of the public they serve than ever. Racialized journalists have been saying this for years. Some of them say it, with justification, about Canada land. But, in most cases, they haven't been able to show the actual receipts because most Canadian newsrooms won't provide any. The practice of reporting on how many black people you've got, how many brown, how many indigenous, well, it makes people cringe. White people, mostly, especially those of us who are in management. Most racialized people in the industry want that data so that they can base their push for greater inclusion on hard, irrefutable facts. I can say from our own experience, this works. Slowly. We were proud to offer the public transparency on our own diversity stats, less proud to expose our own shortcomings in terms of retaining people of color and women and hiring them for our top jobs. The criticism we faced led to women assuming senior and management positions here, but that's not yet true for people of color. Improving on this is a work in progress and work that we'll do out in the open in no small part because our stats are out in the open which they have to be because diversity stats are something that we ask other news organizations to make public. But it's like pulling teeth. Canadian broadcasters, they have to report on their workplace demographics by law. But there's really no way of pulling the newsroom stats out from the overall breakdown. In terms of publications, print or online, some, like the New York Times, BuzzFeed, and us, voluntarily disclose these numbers. Almost everyone else ignores the question. Back in 2016, Canada Land invited Canada's newspapers to self-report their diversity stats and fill out a survey that was conducted by then-Canada Land employee Vicky Mochama. Only three of 18 newspapers did so. JSource has also tried and failed to get disclosure from Canada's newsrooms. But where journalists failed, academics have succeeded. Journalists slash academics, that is. Ryerson School of Journalism's Asma Malik and Sonia Fatah recently released a major piece of research that compiles 21 years of Canadian newsroom diversity stats from the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and the National Post. How did they get those stats when those papers refuse to cough them up? By focusing on the one kind of journalist whose identity is a matter of public record. Columnists. Okay, but does the racial identity of columnists matter? And once and for all, why does newsroom diversity matter? Is this just about opportunities for diverse media workers? Or is there a much bigger impact here about how the media looks at everything, given who we are? Asma Malik and Sonia Fatah join me here in our Toronto studio to discuss all of that and their research in a minute. But before they do, one update. The columnist of color at the Globe and Mail, who you will hear us discuss in this conversation, Denise Balkasun, who happens to be, if you go to the Globe and Mail's website, to their opinion section, and click on columnists, she is the only columnist of color you will find there. Well, she has since left the Globe for a job at Chatelaine. Wait for it. (laughs) 
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Joshua Benchescu, Jamie Aloy Delaire, Ryan Kloss, Rose Kozeel, Joe G, Chris Thomas, Jeffrey Turnbull, and Andrew Fleming. My name is Andrew Fleming, and I'm a freelance writer based in Vancouver. I support Canada Land because I like my independent journalism with a side of snark, and also because I enjoy the regular reminders about just how comfortable any mattresses really are. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Last thing before the show starts, I want to shout out Ryan McMahon's podcast. No, not Thunder Bay. If you only know Ryan from Thunder Bay, you really need to check out Red Man Laughing, where you will hear a very different Ryan McMahon. So we're kind of like, we're kind of stumbling through each day and we're like nervous, like the, the, the land acknowledgement. I don't know. I mean, you have to do it. The Vancouver Podcast Festival and Andrea, and it's not about you. It's just, we'd like to acknowledge the land. That's all. We're just mentioning it. <laughs> just, we're just going to rub it in that we have it. <sighs> it's just gone. It's just gone. It's just... Enjoy everything you're about to witness just on this land that was no longer theirs and it's ours collectively. And what's really interesting is like land acknowledgements used to be enough. Like that, used, that would blow my mind. When you had first heard those, you're like, what is even happening? When you heard Prime Minister Trudeau say, we're going to decolonize the government, I jerked off. I was like, ah! Yeah! I don't even know why. I, and I'm sorry to the front row. Oh, my God. 
there's an elder right here. I am so sorry. That was very rude. It's okay. She's like, I've done that too. It's fine. So, yes, uh, that is a different side to Ryan McMahon. I worked with him on such serious and, and sad material that it's easy to forget how funny the guy is until you listen to his show, which you should because it is funny. Right now, Red Man Laughing is doing this big retrospective on the last decade in indigenous art and culture. This is an amazing time for indigenous cultural expression. You do not want to miss out on this. There are guest hosts this month like Jesse Wente and Alicia Elliott. Listen, this is a podcast that should be in your mix. So go and subscribe to Red Man Laughing wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Sonia Fata and I teach at Ryerson School of Journalism. I'm an assistant professor and I just joined this year as a full-time tenure stream faculty member. I'm Asma Malik and I'm an associate professor at the School of Journalism at Ryerson. Welcome. Thank you. In numbers, how bad is the problem of representation in Canadian newspaper columns? It's bad, but I think we knew that already anecdotally, and it's really been hard to actually get inside and actually look at the numbers. So we really started with looking at columnists, and it's bad. While whiteness in the general population is going down, it's going up at the start of the Post and the Globe. So while the population of Canada is getting less and less white, the population of white columnists uh, is going up. Essentially, we're looking at whiteness is overrepresented in Canadian columnists now, 11% over the percentage of white people in Canada, according to the census. So Davide Mastracci, who is our researcher on this, was collecting the data and putting the numbers together. We had a spreadsheet where we had a list of all the columnists and the category of race. It was blindingly white. It was just white, 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 white. Oh, the occasional, you know, South Asian or racial. Well, we categorized actually as racialized and then subcategorized in terms of what their ethnicities were and what their, how, how they self-identify. How they self-identify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've had issues in the past trying to do very transparent, transparency reporting of diversity at Canada land and everybody who's co-hosted or being guests, we're looking across the board. And then we ran into this issue of like, well, how are you determining that? Is that just who you think is a racialized person? Like, what is your methodology for determining who's white and who's not? So we started with the idea of self-reporting, the idea that you know your own identity and you're able to self-identify, which is, I think, important in this. But that requires voluntary participation on the survey and that kind of thing. But we thought, OK, columnists are pretty transparent in their columns about who they are. And so we actually went into the texts of columns and social media posts to actually get people's self-identification. So, for example, if someone in their own column says, you know, I middle class white lady or if someone, you know, refers to themselves as a cisgender white woman in their column, for example, we used the columnist's own words to categorize them. And just to be specific in terms of who we were capturing, we were looking at people who were either staff columnists or who were people who had written at least 40 times a year in the specific publications we were looking at. And we were looking at the Global Mail, the National Post, and the Toronto Star because we saw those as the three major kind of national publications. So this is an important distinction that a lot of newsreaders are not aware of. They open up the paper, they read an opinion, they think that's an opinion column. There's a big difference between somebody who files a guest op-ed, who like calls up the editor of the opinion page and says, I want to write something, or even somebody who gets a contract to write the occasional piece, and this other category, which is a staff columnist, which not only means that person gets to write three times a week in some cases, but also from a kind of insider baseball perspective, those are the jobs that everybody wants. Those are high-paid jobs. There's status with those jobs. Mm -hmm. That's what you were measuring. Yeah. So we were going with columnists who had published at least 40 times in a year. We didn't actually categorize freelance or not. It was frequency that we were looking at. 
it's interesting because we were looking at this period of time, this 20-year period, since the 21-year period since the launch of the Post, which was supposed to bring new voices to, you know, to Canadian journalism. And there was a lot of sense of Post is a fresh voice. It's a conversational voice. Let's bring new voices to the stayed papers in Canada. The role of columnists has also changed in Canada in the sense that they're often front page. They're often reporting the news. You know, you'll have them at trials. You'll have like, you know, a column by somebody on the front page and you'll have a news story. But often as like newsrooms are shrinking, the columnist will be the one who will actually be writing the story. That suggests that the role and the influence of the columnist has gotten greater through the years. And I think maybe later in this conversation, I'm going to suggest to you the opposite. But before we get there... There's something I want to clarify. You bring up measurement when it comes to diversity stats and one methodology. You know, I, I said there's an essential flaw in the researcher just making determinations of who's mm -hmm. who. And then you quickly brought up another problem, which is that when you ask people to self-report, and we had basically a failed attempt at this, and mm -hmm. which you cite, people don't. Mm -hmm. There are other professions where they have to, and there are other professions where they voluntarily do so. But if you send questionnaires to newsrooms in Canada and say, can you just let us know who's who in your newsroom? The vast majority of them will not respond. So that takes us to how you did this, which was you went into the columns themselves, mm -hmm. into people's self-identification. And the question I have to ask you about that is, does that not carry within it a vulnerability in terms of it requires a white columnist to proclaim at some point, I am white? Do they all do that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Everyone does it. I think our data was like 99 point something accurate. That's so interesting because this whole exercise of counting who is racialized and who isn't mm -hmm. is often something that gets characterized as, oh, you identity politics people are obsessed with this shit. And you're the ones who are always claiming I'm this, I'm that, I'm intersectional, and I'm this and that. And we're not obsessed with that. But you're finding that every white columnist at some point does proclaim their identity as something that is relevant to the opinion that they're presenting. And it's sometimes in the tone, right? It's sometimes like, oh, well, I wouldn't know that as a white middle-aged person. So it's not always as in proclaimed as a sense of like ownership and pride, but like in this culture, in this milieu right now, I am forced to say that as a cis white male, I wouldn't know this, right? I'm not, and we actually haven't gone in and done a textual analysis. Yeah. And I want to make that point because that's an important point because this is really step one of a process of, of examination with a goal to developing a tool that will actually help the industry really examine the process of hiring and staffing. Yeah. I would uh, say that that was a big surprise for me. Yeah. To, to, to actually see how many white columnists were declaring their whiteness in their columns. I mean, it came sometimes in, in like, you know, as you're saying, Sonia, in ways of kind of sort of uh, sarcasm or ways of sort of, you know, saying isn't it ironic as I as a white person. Mm -hmm. One of the kind of most unusual one that we came across was someone who tweeted, when it comes to Turkey, I grew up with the standard white man's preference for white meat, but I like dark meat as I get older. But there's like real ways that they insert their whiteness. And I really have to give props to our researcher, Davide, who mm -hmm. did the hard work of going through 21 years of columns and finding these references to self-identification. I mean, that seems like an instructive takeaway from this research in and of itself, that l let us do away with this notion that identity is something that only certain people with mm -hmm. a certain political bent or a certain academic background care about. Which I think is why we could do this research, because opinion columns would be the one space where people would feel like they have to present part of who they are. Yeah. 
and do it openly or as openly as as they choose to do it. We didn't have to do what you guys tried to do with Canada Land or JSOS tried to do a few years ago and John Miller tried to do with Karen Court in their research in 2004. They didn't, you know, limited results and limited kind of uh, response to that kind of work. So we were looking to avoid that to make a point. We wanted to make a point that there is a problem. What do we do now about that? I think that I can understand the focus on op-ed columnists as just a practical means to an end that you can't get the other data because newsrooms aren't giving it up. So, well, let's just look at it through this way where people are actually just self-identifying. Yeah. And that way we, we have good, solid data. And from that, we can get some measurable clarity on this larger issue of is Canadian media too white? We know that it is, Mm -hmm. but whether you're approaching this as a journalist or as a researcher, knowing that it is or suspecting that it is is different than measuring that it is and and, and being able to state that for a fact. So that's clever. And congratulations for quantifying something that needed to be quantified. But am I to understand this merely as a clever way of encountering the wider issue of newsroom diversity? Or, Asma, as you were suggesting earlier, is there something specifically relevant and important about columnists. No, I think it's it's the former, not the latter. I think columnists are the tip of the iceberg. They don't occupy the role that they once did occupy in newspapers. I mean, we're talking about declining circulations. Columnists aren't for print media anyway, but when I'm talking about page one and that kind of like prominence. And it's interesting that the columnists, they are translating to social media. There is a sense of opinion having a place in news online. But in our study, we looked at the average length. The tenure of a columnist is nine years mm-hmm. at these papers. And so... They've been around for a long time. I think the average age is like 54. I mean, they're not people who are so relevant at this point to to the discourse, to news now. I might argue that they're they're less relevant than they ever were. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's not we an argument. Disagree. You're not going to get yeah. an argument on that. Um, it's really a way of, I mean, this is a chronological study too. Like we went back 20 years. So really when we're talking about, you know, people always want to talk about what's happening now, what's happening in newsrooms now. And we have no historical record of what's you been happening. You took a wider view of the whole yeah, thing. Uh, and that wide view, you mentioned the post earlier. I noticed this in your research. Who wins the award for the longest stretch without, with, with only well, white columnists? The Globe and Mail with 11 years. 11 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought we were we're gonna, it was going you to probably the National Post. I thought yeah. it would be the Post. 11 years and every columnist was white that's during correct. that 11 yes. year mm-hmm. period yes. in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. that's something. That is. It's quite something. I'm glad to hear you say that because I wouldn't want to have a conversation in which we all pretend that it, it's really incredibly important. The idea that like columnists are some elite class mm-hmm. of Canadians who have undue influence over the public conversation maybe was once true and there aren't many of them and they do have space in the biggest news but you know they're like and yet I kind of feel like we only talk about them when they fuck up or when there's a scandal around them I think part of it was also to look at editorial vision right which is why we were looking at f- 40 articles a year, because we were looking at, like, what does that say about the publication? Because it's investing in certain voices or certain or giving real estate to certain individuals. Whether or not a a column is really important to the public, it's really damn important to the globe. Right. Especially when it's that. I mean, like we say, these are some of the highest paid. So, So when they have some slots open and they give it to Andrew Coyne and Robin Urbach, 
that tells you something about that the That is blow. saying something. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a statement. Yeah. It's a yeah. statement. It's a statement on the editorial direction of the, pa- of the paper. Right. Like, essentially, we could do the same thing with mastheads, right, when we're looking at who do they reflect. I mean, it's all kind of comes out in who do you pay to be the face of your very thin print publication. Yeah. So, you know, it's that real estate is pretty valuable. And it really is kind of statement real estate in that sense. I would just add that we also think about this from the perspective of because we've got, you know, we're doing the research, but we also are teaching and we are interacting with students and we see the optics of this kind Mm of hiring and the impact it has on our students in terms of giving them the sense of this is what the traditional media establishment is investing in for the next, you know, Mm -hmm. for its foreseeable future. Who is this institution for and how does it conceive of the range of opinions that exist? Mm -hmm. A lot gets revealed in that. To imagine otherwise also has issues attached to it. In what sense? Well, okay. So there's a difference in what it means to have a column for me or, say, um, Denise Balkasun at the Mm -hmm. Mail. If they had the poor judgment to give me a column, I would see it as my role to use that column like my personal sandbox Mm -hmm. where I would judge my success based on how provocative can I be? And can I throw some really interesting takes at people that I might not agree with myself? I got to do this three times a week or whatever. I want people to be talking about my column. I want people to be chewing over uh, my witticism or arguing over me and the things that I have to say. And I'm going to try to just read from a broad range of things. I'm going to pull in from anything I, I possibly can think of. If I have ethical issues, I'll love Margaret Wente. You know, I'll just borrow it from other people, but I'm going to try to poke. Right. Whereas... It is something of an occasion when a columnist spot goes to a racialized journalist. So in the case of Denise Balkasun, I have to imagine that her ability to view her column as her personal play box is mitigated by the responsibility and the burden and an inbox that I'm sure is filled with any number of advocacy groups or people who can't get reporters to care about their case, who are seeking out places in the establishment media where they might get a platform or they might get heard demanding that she advocate for them or tell their story or take on a specific argument. And that's one pressure from one side. And then on the other, I'm aware that racialized columnists get tremendous pressure from management and from readers saying, why are you always writing about race? Mm-hmm. Why don't you write about something like your column's not as fun as somebody else's column? So, yeah, I didn't want to approach this like like in ignorance of the fact that there is a completely different value. Like if, if the corrective of this would be to have a more representative bunch of columnists in, in Canada, but that, that carries some problems too. I don't think- I, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. No, no, I'm no. just saying it's like- I always say step one, that? step one. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not meant to be like, oh, this is, and actually we had some people respond to us, people obviously on, on a certain side of the spectrum, basically saying, well, what do you want? Do you want an equal Canada where you can compare people by the demographic of, and what does that mean? And of course, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is just saying, if we don't do this basic job, we're not even starting to have the conversation around staffing. And staffing is one element. There's so many other issues. At the Toronto Star, for example, you know, you have an entire uh, newsroom sitting there with its leadership sitting with uh, Maxime Bernier and having this conversation. If you had other voices at the table, how different would that be or would that even happen? Would that event even happen? You're referring to when Maxime Bernier came and met the editorial board of the Toronto Star and was questioned by a lot of really sympathetic sounding white journalists. Mm -hmm. There were racialized journalists at the Star who refused to attend. 
there was a boycott, mm-hmm. um, an organized boycott. And in her column after Bernier's visit, Sri Pradkar did write about how racialized journalists in the newsrooms did get together and decide that they weren't going to attend the event. But the event happened nonetheless. It was broadcast. Nonetheless, we saw people coming into the room, coming out of the room. It was very much a, a free speech. Yeah. What a, what a relevant example yeah. for a conversation. And what a painful one, because it's what a catch-22. You know, you don't want to validate this editorial board meeting by attending. And yet if you don't, it just rolls on without you. And you could see in the videotape of that meeting, it was atrocious. Yeah. Well, and the burden then is on the racialized journalists to come and like come together and bandy together and and find a way to sort of stand up to this. But if if in the kind of utopian sort of goal that we we hope that we can present, like you wouldn't have that issue even come to the table because you would create a space where you'd be listening to other voices and be thinking about other perspectives. I also think of opinion writing as just like the classified ads. It's just something that the internet's taken away from Mm -hmm. newspapers. Like I have access to opinions in a way that I never did before. And they're not filtered. You know, if I want to know what people have to say about something like there is black Twitter and there's indigenous Twitter and it's people write differently there with the conceit of being that people are writing for each other, then I am writing to an audience that is other than me on the Toronto Stars platform. Mm -hmm. I'd rather read the real version of that. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned those particular groups, given that over the 21-year period we were looking at, there were no Indigenous columnists on any of those papers. And there were three Black men columnists, but there were no women, Black women. Gender actually did catch up. It was not ever at parity. But if I'm not mistaken, it was pretty close. There are studies that talk about, you know, and I don't don't have them in front of me, but who actually benefits from diversity initiatives and different organizations. And often it's the case where it's white women. And so, you know, when we're talking about no black women colonists, no indigenous colonists, these are groups that are hugely underrepresented. So we can't say parity is necessarily equality or some kind of representation in that sense. If you look at the three black men who were columnists, we're talking about Desmond Cole, who was there for two years, Ken Weaver, who was there for four years, the Globe and Mail, and Royce and James. Who was there for 16, right? Yeah. Let's talk about that, because for an Andrew Coyne, I have every expectation that he will spend the next 20 years at the Globe and Mail. When we talk about what these positions mean in Canada, and I, I don't know how you quantify this in academic research, but... If we have some kind of ideal of of the newspaper columnist, uh, as previously described, as somebody who's provoking, can be judged by how well they challenge ideas and get you to think, which is great. Like, there's a place for that. That's wonderful. Canada is kind of uses columnists differently. When I think of like a Lawrence Martin, or like it feels like some of the columnists here are the most boring Mm -hmm. voices who are enjoying permanent sinecures that are more a a conference of status. Mm -hmm. And they are not under any particular pressure to challenge ideas. And I I remember Desmond Cole using the phrase radical activists for the status quo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've often remarked that Margaret Wente's job when she had one was to say some people are very upset about something, but they're silly and you don't need to worry about them. Right. And and, and her role was to reassure readers that you don't multiple times a week. Yeah. (laughs) That you you, you needn't pay Mm -hmm. mind to ideas that upset you. Uh, It's a very different application of the columnist role than some sort of contrarian or provocateur. When those three black men got columns, these were not permanent sinecures that they were able to toss off dull columns and and cash the checks into, into retirement. 
I mean, it's interesting because people compare Desmond Cole to those of us who are old enough to remember Michelle Landsberg, who was very, you know, feminist columnist, did a lot of activism in her private life, which was really her public life. She's a public figure. I think the star supported her when she wanted to keep a daycare open or something like that. And there was a lot of support from the paper. And people kind of go, that's the comparison that people are always looking at in terms of, well, that activism's okay, but this one isn't. And The background for people who, who may not have this at their fingertips is that Desmond Cole briefly had a column until he was told that he could be an activist or a columnist, but he couldn't do both at yeah. the Toronto Star. And Kathy English, the public editor, backed that up. We were among those pointing out that there's a fine history at the Toronto Star, uh, Michelle Landsberg uh, being maybe the most prominent one, but there are many examples of activists slash columnists and activists slash reporters at the Toronto Star. And even in the Atkinson Principles, the Toronto Star is an activist newspaper. Mm -hmm. It it crusades for things. Uh, The rules were different for Desmond. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't even on the staff. Yeah. And he was being told what to do on his private time. I don't imagine that any of the people responsible for these decisions rub their palms together and say, let's create an incredibly racist Canadian media. That's a really great pivot, actually, because I don't think we want to take a position on that. But I think what, what I would say is that the goal of this research is to sort of work with the industry in addressing some of these problems. And by that, I think what we are trying to do is take the next level of our research is to develop a self-ID tool. There is a lot of research that is not just on the media industry, but looking at other industries where just where these conversations are happening around diversity and staffing. And a lot of them have started taking a look at their organizations and thinking about how they can change and adapt and, and find new spaces. We want to do that for the media industry as well in collaboration with the industry. So we're not out here saying we're here to shame you, although inherently we may be doing that. Yes, you are. <laughs> Do they but, feel shame? I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, they, I mean, if you can't, if, if that's not possible, then I don't know why you would be doing this. Okay, anyway, that's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is we want to work together to try and address the issue because, yes, these organizations are sort of going away, but they're also not yet going away. And to me, that's that's an area that I'm particularly interested in going forward. I mean, we're talking about I mean, a lot of people have been criticizing sort of the, the what we've been talking about, saying, well, these are newspapers. They're not relevant. This doesn't matter in 2019. Mm-hmm. Like you said, columnists, the role of the columnist is changing. They're becoming more and more irrelevant. But actually, if we take a look at news innovation and new startups in Canada or in the U.S. or elsewhere, similar problems are being replicated. So you take like, you know, tech and digital culture, which is very white in many ways in terms of what gets funded. And we're yeah. talking about like different funding models, but you're actually relying on investments, like in people mm-hmm. taking risks on a not like, you know, the biggest payoff for like journalism and that kind of thing. But who's actually gets to innovate? Who's who's running the startups and news? So it's not- Who a gets pro- to build the new world that mm-hmm. we're also yeah, excited about. Exactly. So it's the same problem. It's not like this problem has gone away with mm-hmm. like, you know, with the lack of money in legacy media. It's just, it's going to be harder and harder. Well, this is actually, this comes up all the time when conceit of Canada land is that it does matter what the media does. And and often the response is, well, the media is weaker and less influential than it ever was. Mm -hmm. So does this, does this matter? And it's sort of like as wounded and as, as insignificant as the media might be, nothing's replaced it yet as a reflection of what is Establishment Canada or who gets to talk or who who gets that stamp of approval. And it seems to matter incredibly to political parties and to corporations what makes it into these editorials, whether or not the public's reading them or not. And sometimes there's a practice of laundering a position, making sure that there's uh, a fine record of support for it 
sprinkled throughout the press so you could later demonstrate that there's widespread public support for something. So it's a strange shadow of what matters and that still has relevance and influence, even if it's completely ignored. 25 years later, we're still having the same conversations. And it's kind of interesting that there hasn't been more of an evolution. And I think part of that is because there's such deeply entrenched Mm -hmm. old school ways of doing things that even now, you know, we deal with this at, at the school when we're talking to students who are trying to find new ways to imagine but they they come through a schooling system that also teaches them, well, this is how you do journalism. Well, I mean, one of the conversations that we want to have and we want to keep having at the school is you can do journalism in a different way, you know, and, and yeah. that means like, you know, where what is the role of the individual? How do you locate yourself in in the stories you're writing? And is that important? And, and how is that connected to matters of public interest and transparency with your audience and all of that kind of stuff? And we've been really slow in trying to change that. Yeah. When people complain about J school, they complain that, that it's a mill teaching people like CP style and, you know, that, that it's it's training people for a system that is rapidly disappearing. There are new ways of doing this. We were trying to figure this out, talking about this very issue uh, in anticipation of you coming in, saying, you know, do, do these columns even matter? And are these the megaphones that have influence? And then the question was shifted a little bit. Well, what is the megaphone that has influence? And all I could think yeah. of was like Drake's Instagram account. <laughs> right, right, right. Like what, what is the pulpit that like is actually, wow, it has spoken. It's it's pretty fractured. And, and, it's, very fractured. it's very fractured. Fragmented. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because we've got J school students who, to your point, are in many cases are learning skills that may seem like they're, you know, destined for legacy media jobs and that kind of thing, but are actually fundamentally writing, synthesizing information, researching, talking to people. But students also are not consuming these sort of traditional forms of journalism themselves. And Mm -hmm. so there's this real disconnect that we like really have to be like, well, no, do what you consume, like understand how you consume media. You don't watch, you know, the national. Why is that an aspiration? And that's when Ryerson journalism students pivoted to TikTok. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing I always think about is like, do do students come to journalism school absorbing their all kinds of different media and then come to J school and then start reading the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and yes, CBC yes, yes. and then they walk out of there, but then their disconnect from the audience is even more severe. It's even more, right. exactly. Right? The, the journalism school as an institution has to be a center of experimentation. It has to be a laboratory. And I think we're working towards doing well, even, small initiatives. Even least. if we're talking about fragmentation of like of media, when we're talking about our journalism schools, like our journalism student body is actually quite diverse. And they don't like students don't see themselves reflected in examples that, you know, that are shown mm-hmm. or in what they see out there. And there's real like students who I'm still in touch with after they've graduated who are struggling with challenges in their newsroom, not being able to speak up, not being able to pitch stories, not feeling like what they think is important mm-hmm. is thought of as important by that particular newsroom, those editors. It's challenging as racialized faculty also to be the sort of people that people come to to be like, hey, this is, you know, this is bothering me and whatever. And that, you know, we talk about like invisible labor. We talk about all the things that come with that in the newsroom or outside of the, in the classroom, whatever. But this is something that the industry really needs to change and, and needs to be more than just superficial entry level jobs for people. Sonia, like you say, we're, we're having the same conversation for 20 years. I have to imagine that research like this, the intent is that the industry will take this and reform itself and get better. As we're pointing out, forget about offering better jobs or more self-reflective jobs. There's no jobs. Would not 
the direction, if there is one, be that the journalists that you are educating and training need to basically start from scratch and build their own media? Like reforming what we have, like there's very little evidence to suggest that that is ever going to happen. Well, I mean, I don't think there's any one answer, right? And there has to be more confidence given to students to think about imagining their own spaces that they can create. But where's the money in it, right? And I think that is the driving factor for students is how are we going to get paid? Shouldn't that be like half of the education is like the entrepreneurship aspect Actually, of it? that's what I teach. I teach entrepreneurship and innovation. And we in my class, we actually come up with ideas in the class that we build throughout the semester, test, iterate, and all these other things. But it's part of a larger effort that needs to be kind of yeah. much more part of a whole program, not just... Right. And we do it. We do it at the yeah. Ryerson Review of Journalism. There's always a business team, and they're thinking yeah. about revenue streams, and they're thinking about, like, how do you grow a traditional print publication to something more than than that. So we're trying these different things. But I have to say that journalism students are generally reluctant to, to enter the innovation space. Oh, they think that money's dirty. Yes. They're, and, they're, well, they're, they're, it's anathema. I they don't want to talk. I mean, for somehow, some reason, this church and state thing, yeah. that's something that is successfully being imparted on the, on the, the younger generation. And that, I think that's got to go. I don't necessarily feel that way, but I do think that journalism students, they're a vulnerable population. They're yes. just students, right? Yes. I mean, they're not going to, like, they might have ideals. They might have things that they want to do and we want to support them in doing them. But there are challenges, like, that they would face. Like, in, like, in my class, for example, they come up with great ideas for startups. But it's really kind of connecting them with people who want to invest with them and figuring out, okay, what does that look like? And that is part of what we're doing. I mean, we are trying to think entrepreneurially, but what about the people with the money? What about the people who sure. are actually making these. I mean, you know, to your point about Torstar, like, why are they saving the mothership and like really trying to kind of, you know, keep the star intact? But what to what end? Who are they serving that they haven't been serving for all these years? And who's going to keep paying for this? And I don't I don't know. I struggle to say they don't care. I suspect they care, but I don't know what that looks like. They're just trying to make it to yeah, next year. Yeah, They're just yeah, trying to stay alive right yeah. now. I mean, you're absolutely right. To stay alive, they need to have a long-term plan that involves engaging younger people. But, you know, you it's it's the Crookshanks of the mm-hmm. world. They, have, they, don't have, they don't have a clue. You know? Well, and, and, and that's think... been ongoing. I would say since like I mean I started at the Star in '98 as a one-year intern, the year the Post was born, with this idea that oh these are going to be young voices and we're all about young voices and yeah. different voices and that kind of thing. But to be honest, I look around the landscape of media and it's a lot of the same names, a lot of the same people. There's like you know I'm like oh I know that person when they were an intern there or that person like that's not changing. There's a real sense that that's not going to change, but and they've tried. Like, I, I kind of want to go back and think about all the different young people, you know, products. There were, like, many attempts at sections bringing in young columnists and that kind of thing. But that's not – they're not relevant in the same way. But they need to think differently. The I don't think that the they will. <laughs> no. I mean, there's too many projects where people wait for the next wealthy idiot to yeah. invest in some vanity project. And then the clock's ticking till right. they get tired of losing money. And, you know, I, I don't know. You clearly, as someone who's done that kind of experimentation yourself – it's not that easy to build something. And then we have the big challenge of discoverability. Like, how do you build your audience, right? How do you even enter the market space and all of that? But I think the the big question that we perhaps aren't also asking is we keep talking about journalism and its failure. We don't talk about, you know, we're talking about the church-state divide. Who are the business guys behind journalism? And what the hell have they been doing? Like, why have they struggled so much to find 
a, a new way of of building audiences and building a new model. Like there's no funding models that exist. I find that so incredible to accept or stomach well, after all this time. I don't think it's a question of funding models. I think it's a question of the amount of money that you can make. Like I think over the years, newspapers made an exceptional amount of money from the print product and print advertising. Yes. Yeah. So it's getting used to that kind of return, which it's, is impossible. Mm-hmm. You hit it on the head. Like if you are a John Hondrick and the only future for profitable journalism is for journalism to be done at a micro scale, you're not interested. He's looking for the model that's going to save the old machine, not the model that's going to fuel the new machine. It's not going to come from these guys. Like, you know, it would be much more surprising if it did. I think that there is a future where I think new things, I mean, the podcast space has kind of burgeoned, but even that feels very saturated now. There's, there's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of podcasts. And then there's a question of what is a good podcast and all of that. Well, let me tell uh, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do tell us. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think the other thing is like experimentation. I think creating a culture where experimentation is good and positive. And I think the journalism schools have a place to have a big part to play in creating that kind of space. It was inevitable that I was going to put journalism school on, on trial in this conversation, which is not what you came in here for. What would be the best possible out? Outcome of this research that you've released? So our goal is to come up with a self-reporting tool for all Canadian publications, sort of uh, news organizations to kind of look at themselves and actually be public with this data. And the hope is that working with groups such as the Canadian Journalists of Color, a Canadian Association of Black Journalists, working with groups who are actually invested in increasing numbers of journalists from across different races, different identities, that kind of thing. We want to be able to come up with a tool that we can actually use over time to track what's going on. I mean, how can you solve a problem you can't see? Asma and Sonia, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's your Canada Land. If you liked it, say so. Tell a friend, write us a review on Apple Podcasts, that stuff matters. Email me if you liked it or even if you didn't at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This week there is a new episode of Commons. It's part of their fabulous Dynasty series, which you should be checking out. And the family they're looking into is the Demaray family. Worth a listen. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish and Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show and you like our other podcasts and you want ad-free versions, or if you want to gift ad-free versions of our podcast to somebody else, all of that is possible when you support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. 
It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 